Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. For example, you could get a sample episode of Competitive Strategy with Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne is an ex-McKinsey partner, former worldwide head of strategy, and he had served something like over 25 CEOs on a personal level, on a one-to-one basis over his career. Kevin also has a program called How to Become a McKinsey Partner. It's the first time ever a McKinsey partner has gone on record talking about what is actually required to become a partner and you'll find it's very different from what you think is required how to develop deep insights which i have put together one of our most popular programs the electric car startup you will get sample episodes of all of those programs and more if you sign up to this list so that said i hope you enjoy today's episode hi everyone welcome to the next edition of the strategy skills podcast today we have an exciting and very interesting guest, Bill Shanninger, who is a senior partner at McKinsey and is the worldwide leader of their organization practice. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Uh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Fantastic. So maybe just uh, as a start, just give us a brief overview of your background, you know, where you studied and so on, so the audience gets familiar with who you are. Right. Well, I'll tell you, if you listen to me, uh, and you would think that applies to uh, McKinsey, you'd get the wrong impression. I'm rather atypical. Yeah, why uh, is that? Well, I don't have uh, particularly prestigious degrees. I mean, I have a lot of degrees, but yeah. you know, not from not from our core schools, right? So, you know, I went under undergraduate. I finished at a place called Moravian College. Okay. Which is a uh, a new liberal arts school, sixth oldest in America, 1742. Notable because uh, we were the first to enroll women. Oh. And, wow. When we educated uh, Native Americans, we educated them in their language, not ours. So uh, I'm, I'm obviously very proud of that institution. Yeah. I'm a trustee there now. So. so, you know, different, right? It has a seminary, you know? So it was, when I was going there, it was very much in the liberal arts tradition. You know, my undergraduate degrees in business administration, but that was after two years of forcing you to think a little bit. And then I went and my first job was I ran a residential psychiatric treatment center a unit uh, there so i'd like it you know right. a residential psychiatric treatment center right so think about when and i you know, i had four i had four or five units over my time there yeah. as young as eight as old as 20 in many cases court ordered in fact the majority of cases court ordered and rather than going to detention or somewhere else it was usually kids who were duly diagnosed they had some combination of a you know, a, a psychological deficiency or say a cognitive deficiency or just came from a brutal background. Yes. And, uh, you know, so I'd have staff and I'd have the kids and, you know, a social worker who was there to make sure that we were doing okay. And yeah, I did, I did that for like five years. But now while I was doing that, I discovered that I was surrounded by really smart people, way smarter than me, who all wanted to have a big impact in the world. But we were terrible at running the place. So, you know, passion only gets you so far. And so then I figured, okay, I'll go back to school full time at night, back to Moravian, because it was, you know, both here where I live and then close to where I was working. Mm-hmm. And I just started going to school full time at night. I take classes, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you know, three, three and a half hours a night, and just started working on an MBA. And when I was doing that, I really came around to this idea that, you know, plans are great, and I'm really interested in how people make money. Yeah. But plans are just plans until people start behaving differently. That's true. And so that really turned me on to the, you know, the org psych part of it. 
Yeah. And it was then I made it, this was 1996. And I made a decision to go back to grad school. So I went to Auburn because mm -hmm. there were some uh, really, really good faculty then studying change or, or behavior. And uh, I got another master's and a PhD in management, which effectively works psych taught in business school. So you never came from a sort of traditional business background. You started with an interest in people. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I was always interested in, 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 in making money, but it was how people were involved in making money, you know? Yeah, but that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they go into business, they, they start from a business side and they figure out they need to understand people and they kind of do a few courses and so on. But you started from the people side. Yeah. Yeah, that's driving right. influence. And then you figure out you need to have some structure to this, and then you, you picked up the business skills, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I was because of the work I was doing, I was fascinated whenever I'd look at something and say, why would an otherwise well-intended person be yeah. doing something that seems so counterproductive? And I wanted to understand that. And then I want to understand what the company did and what leaders did that encouraged or dissuaded that. And so what was your PhD in? What is your thesis? Uh, well, officially, it's a PhD in management. Okay. Um, my, my dissertation was on why people go above and beyond at work. Oh, that's interesting. And what did you find? Well, so I was studying what's called social exchange relationships. So, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, there's the basic economic exchange, which is I do something and you pay me. You know, straight quid pro quo. Social exchange is a little different because that is a give and a get between you and your leader, leader member exchange, you and your team, uh, teammates, team member exchange. And then we created a construct called org member exchange, which was this diffuse idea of what the company is doing for you and what you're providing to the company. Yeah. But in all cases, it's things like loyalty, extra role behavior, you know, contribution, influence, things yeah. like that, right? It's basically the people you see that get the best, the best projects, have the ear of the boss, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, the respect, the trust. It's understanding that dynamic and then what you can or cannot do that increases the likelihood that people are going to give discretionary effort uh, towards your goals. Wow. So you really are into organizational thinking. Isn't that something you just picked up and decided to specialize in at McKinsey? This is where you started from. That's right. That does make it a little atypical, right? I mean, you know, I, I came with the org stuff first and then learned, learned the broader but the broader range of topics that I would cover as a generalist uh, partner at McKinsey. So why did you, and how did you end up at McKinsey? I mean, did you go straight from your PhD to McKinsey? I did, but in a rather backward manner. Yeah. So in 1999, I was out on the market. I was so ABD, all but dissertation. I had my data, but wasn't done yet. I started looking for teaching jobs. And in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was an ad there for an academic fellowship uh, with McKinsey in Boston. It was then their org design practice. I sent my Vita to them, and I, I had a pretty good run of, of publishing, you know, as a PhD student. So I, I was feeling, uh, you know, pretty buoyant about my prospects. Mm -hmm. uh, they responded and said, hey, that's really nice, but we were actually looking for like a full professor who has a reputation. Yeah. But, uh, we, you know, we liked your resume, so we hope you don't mind. We sent it to our colleagues in London who are hiring. Yeah. And they rang me up, and then, you know, our normal, our normal cycle was, what, six, nine months maybe for recruiting? Mine was about six weeks. Wow. And, uh, you know, two trips to London, a seemingly endless string of interviews. And I joined the org practice in London, uh, August 1st, uh, 2000. So that's interesting. So yes, you're the only person I've ever met from McKinsey who starts off by saying they have an atypical background. They don't have, I think the words you use, an elite background. I'm not sure if I remember correctly. Most people yeah. do the opposite. 
And then you, you do your interviews, you apply in the United States, but they send you to London, you get the role, and then you start working in London as a generalist, or do you go straight into the opera? As a special, no, it's, again, here's something atypical. I started as a specialist. You started as a specialist. I started as a specialist, but was elected as a generalist. Because most people, they usually start as a generalist and then they end up maybe specializing later. Well, you have to at a certain point. Yes. Dealing yes. with a certain group of clients. But you started as a specialist and then you kind of picked up generalist skills as you went along. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Very and, you must have had some really good mentors making sure you... Well, I really did. I mean, the guy who, the guy who would run the practice for... I don't know, eight years, mm -hmm. had just joined the year before. And, you know, he, he had an MPhil in psychology. He was really interested in us bringing more rigor to our organization work, less interested, as we like to say, less interested in making things up yeah. and more interested in being grounded. And so, you know, it was a nice, it was good timing. And uh, I mean, if I would, if you'd look across my 19 years, I would say probably every person you would ask about me would say, I've been fixated on leaving the world of hand waving and bringing good theory and good science to what we do, not as an academic exercise, I like that. just to improve our problem solving. <laughs> so you've only done interesting, based on the work I've seen, org design change work. I mean, some places they call it transformation and so on. And most of this was global out of a base in London. Uh, so let's see. Uh, first four years were in London, and then I moved back to the States, and uh, then I helped open the Philly office in 2005. So you helped open the Philadelphia office. There was 12 of us, yeah, initially. That's right. Oh, oh wow. So that's a different, uh, a different hat you're wearing where you have to build a Dramatically team. different. I mean, I went from London, which was the second largest office in the firm, and at that point, the seat for our managing director, Ian Davis, to an office that had a fraction of a floor and 12 people sitting around one table for lunch. So that was a little different. So what was the reason to, to leave London? Because you know, London's a good office. Well, why would you leave? It's Is it a spectacular office. I, and, and, and to this day, it's my favorite office. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, just the city of London is amazing. Offices, I loved it. people are good. I, I, I'm a complete Anglophile. I mean, you know, you, you know, you can think about whether or not you want to keep this later. I lived at the Wandsworth Bridge, uh, right next to the ship, and yeah. uh, that was, and you know, uh, Peter Hain, the guy who was the uh, you know in charge of the, uh, the House of Commons, he lived above me. Yeah. And I had a glorious life there with a wife and a and a young a young child. Uh, mm -hmm. So not, not my then wife, her father got sick. And I really wanted my son to be able to spend some time with his grandfather before he passed. That's and the reason to move. Yeah. yeah. I probably would not have left had that not happened. Wow. And what's your favorite English food? You know, I really like, I really like pies, honest. Oh, pies. Steak and kidney, chicken and mushroom. Yeah, yeah I think they're great. But you know, if you've really pressed me, I'd probably say a Sunday morning fry up. I'm, I'm yeah. pretty partial to that. So have you taken a partial liking to drinking warm beer? I don't mind it. I mean, you know, because Young's Brewery was a mile away. And so the Special and Triple X were always insanely fresh and pulled on an engine. And it is just really good. In fact, I reject, funny enough that you say that, I reject Guinness Cold. Really? So you've now been completely converted. <laughs> completely. In fact, my daughter, my daughter, who just turned 11, gets really irritated with me when I say, hey, where's the loop? <laughs> you're in the U.S. You'd never hear that in, a, in an American... No, no, not. So anyway, but you know what's interesting? You picked up immediately that I joined as a specialist. Yes. So at that period of time, you know, there were some differences in social rights if you were a specialist versus a generalist. That was not lost on me. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that, you know, 
when we immediately went into a downturn, I was never, ever going to be on the beach because whether you're cutting cost or trying to grow, whether you're trying to change culture or trying to improve talent, you always need to address the org stuff. That's true. All I had to do was be good at org and I could do that anywhere. But it's interesting what you say because you're a specialist who became a partner. A generalist partner, yeah. That is a very unusual path. I mean, most people, when you speak to them, they try to avoid the specialist path because they think it, it can never be a route to the partnership. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, it was my ticket to play in case my core situations were dried up. I ended up doing a ton of uh, operations work in, in refineries and chemical plants because, you know, mistakes happen usually when there's a bad mix between people and uh, machines. Yeah. Culture matters quite a bit in safety, reliability, quality, and making money, funny enough. So, so you did uh, all this refinery work from Pittsburgh? Uh, well, initially from London, because we were doing it there. And then when I moved to Philadelphia, I lived north of Philadelphia, east side of Pennsylvania. I, I flew to Houston, flew to San Francisco. I mean, I got my first million miles on Continental, you know, because <laughs> I, I, I would go where the, uh, the plants were. So you moved to the U.S. just to travel even more, basically. Yes. Well, during that period of time, in fairness, we hadn't yet bought our house. It took about six months. So I was avoiding living with my in-laws. So there was a motivation. <laughs> That's funny. Funny and true. Okay. So you, you're in Pittsburgh. You're building the office. You've obviously found a, I wouldn't say a niche. I know, I know people have referred to organizational work as a niche. To me, it's not a niche. It's yeah, I think it's ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, you know, every company is trying to figure out how to... An organization is not just about where you place people, which is what a lot of people think is about org design and org planning. To me, it's about how people interact. Exactly right. I mean, we take the broadest sense of it, you know, more of the Warner Burke org system kind of thinking. You know, I studied under a guy named Achilles Armanakis, who had a really broad and expansive view of change and the whole org system. You know, so, so the people and the structure and the processes and how you make decisions, and how you allocate the talent, and who you pick. And so, you know, the instrument we wrote, the Organizational Health Index, that was a colleague and I wrote that, in 2002, from the get-go, we were determined to be able to model the whole system, right? Not just the, yeah. not just the impact on the employee. Wow, so you're building the Pittsburgh office, obviously building an all, an all capability in Pittsburgh as well. So what happens there from there? How does your career develop? Right. So I moved, I moved to open Philly because it was next to Wharton in two, end of 2004. Yeah. But when I was still in London, we had the downturn, right? Because it dot mm -hmm. com crash. And you know, we were looking back at some of the things we'd written and said, oh boy, we really picked some doozies here. Yeah. You know? And um, that led to some soul searching around the idea, well, what did we get wrong? So well, we, went back, we went back to uh, In Search of Excellence. Can you give me some examples of some of the things that could have been done better? Well, let's just, let's just look at it. We, I mean, it's, it's named, right? So you can look at these books. We wrote two books at the end of the 90s. Creative Destruction and War for Talent. Good yeah. books. Destruction was based on the Shump the Fetter stuff about, you know, uh, dynamic allocation of capital. And War for Talent was a really good treatment of how to, how to handle talent like we do. So, so if you lined up and you were a talent knowledge core company like we are, it was perfect. If you weren't that, challenging. There was a common company in terms of cases in both those books. Uh, that was Enron. Yes. Right? And uh, There was a common case around 2000. That's true. Yeah, it was common. And so then, you know, when we went back and looked at In Search of Excellence, there was an interesting case highlighted there. And there was more than one. You know, they had several. One of them was Atari. Yes. Six months after the book came out, they were burying games in the desert. Wow. 
So, now, so that sparked your thinking that maybe a little bit think about it a little bit differently. A little bit. I mean, we were pretty sure we were getting it wrong. We weren't the only ones. You know, FT, Forbes, Fortune, Wall Street Journal, everybody had fallen in love with the we never miss a quarter kind of thinking, huh? Yeah, I and, think everyone you know, was on the cover of Fortune six times or something like that. Right? Yeah, it, it's remarkable, right? And obviously we had ties because of the legacy of our alumnus who were there, you know. I'll tell you what was interesting was when we got to the point in that era, most children know that when you have a positive times a positive, it's a positive. But when you have a positive times a negative, it's a negative. And during that era, you had a positive multiple times a negative profit number, and it came out still positive in terms of valuation. That, that is some unusual math. Yes, unusual, frothy math, as they would say. I mean, you know, we all, we, all, we all deluded ourselves there, right? So anyway, that led to us saying, let's have another look. So we went back to the list from In Search of Excellence, and then we looked at the list that um, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras had, you know, in the first Collins book. And just because the math is going to work out right, we'll say there was 51 companies total. And when we rolled it forward to uh, 2001, we said, well, what happened? Well, a third of them didn't exist. And a third of them were really struggling. And a third were doing great. And you look at the basic difference between the ones that were still thriving or excellent, as everyone was calling them, mm -hmm. and the ones that went away, it was one really simple thing. Mm -hmm. The ones that went away got caught in the trap of myopically focusing on quarterly performance. Yes. The ones that thrived said, hey, performance matters to us too. But we're going to really pay attention also to how we get that performance, how we run the place. And that was what we would uh, later label managing for performance and health, which was the essence of the first book, you know, landing this idea that truly long-term sustainable competitive advantage comes from putting equal emphasis on, on performance and health. It's interesting you bring that up because I read your book, Beyond Performance 2.0, that you wrote with Scott Keller, who I believe is a colleague at McKinsey as well, right? Yes. Now, what's interesting about that book is that the entire premise of it is that you have to balance health and performance to be truly sustainable if you want to be successful. Yeah. Now, yeah. do you not feel that there's an absolute obsession today with performance at the expense of health? Because if I just pulled up Bloomberg now and I look at all of the headlines that just talk about performance. It's almost as if the entire investment community, while they want sustainability, they seem to reward performance. Well, I think we're in the waning days of that, honestly. I mean... Yeah. You know, if you go back to like 2005, when you first started seeing the rise of long-term capitalism, long-term investing, mm -hmm. you know, our then managing director, Ian Davis, initiated this idea of organizational health. You know, we'd been talking to him about it and he got it into a, you know, a piece that you put in the FT. And we're increasingly seeing investors who recognize that they're not going to, you know, the multiple they're paying when they buy now means they actually have to improve the company. And if you're going to have to improve the company, you're going to have to change how you run the place. I mean, that's the essence of it, right? The first book really was landing that idea. The yeah. second book, 2.0, was 10 years on, we had clients saying, hey, we buy this idea of, you know, you manage for performance and health, or in plain language, you manage for how you're going to make money and how you run the place. But this change in how you run the place stuff, it's actually really hard. Mm -hmm. So spend a little more, more time on that, please. Like, how do you actually change how you run the place? So that was really the impetus for the second one, right? It was a, it was a real double click on. We're going to remind you a little bit about performance and health, but really we're going to spend a lot of time on how do you actually change it. So the message is the same, but it's about getting people to figure out how to do it. Yes, because most people fail, fail, uh, fail miserably. I read a statistic in the book, and, and I mean, I've heard the statistic before, that something like only 30% of change effort works. Yeah, that's right. And it's been stubbornly stuck at that. I mean, you know, in the, uh, the Cotter and Heskett book in the early 90s, mm -hmm. You know, they had reported it only it seemed like about 30% actually delivered on what they were supposed to. 
Then you saw a series of other similar explorations, stubbornly stuck around 30, including like three of ours. We've noticed in the last several years that if it involves a restructuring, mm-hmm. the number's probably actually in the lower 20s. Yeah, that's standard restructuring. So, you know, one of the big insights for us was after we produced the first book, we started tracking clients who were following the recipe or the prescription yeah. and those who weren't. And when we finally got the data back, we're like, oh boy, okay, well, let's A, make sure that we remind everyone we're not being self-serving. We're not playing funny math. We're reporting the facts. The people who follow the prescription, their likelihood of success is 79%, not 30. So it's better than flip the odds. But if, if all companies are worrying about performance, wouldn't it mean that focus on performance as a competitive advantage will eventually erode? Well, monolithically on performance, it goes away because you're not paying attention to things like, are you keeping the entire place aligned on what you're asking them to do and why they're doing what they're doing? You know, are you really honing in on the right way, the right balance of controls and the right balance of focus and execution? And are you actually making sure that you're not just doing a different version of yesterday? You know, you have your eyes on your customers and your competitors and your, and your partners in your ecosystem. And can you actually change on the fly? I mean, there is an underlying premise here, which is leaders that are going to be successful now don't just run the place. They're also capable of changing the place while they're running the place. Because, you know, nobody gets to call timeout, right? Yeah, you have to be able to do both. I mean, I can't think of any company today that can just say, we've developed our plan, we have a strategy, we've made the changes we need, let's just sit back for the next two years. Right? Change is yeah. continuous. You always have to be running right. Well, right. I mean, you're, look, you're picking up on one of the basic mindset shifts, which is stop treating it as an event. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the normal cost of business. In fact, we've gone now, when we talk about establishing what the value agenda is, when we're trying to figure out the critical roles, we break it up into four chunks. Mm-hmm. If you weren't going to change anything in the business, yeah. business as usual, how do you disaggregate value? Now let's look at all the things you're doing to improve or change the business. Okay, let's add those up. Now, what, what would be net new in the next three years that's not there today, but you're counting on it being there? And then what are the roles that actually protect you? you know, where it may not be a direct line to P&L, but it's a direct line to risk mitigation. And then we add those up so that we can get to the critical roles. That's proven to be a really critical, really critical move here, which is don't try to do everything for every role, but do know the roles that proportionately carry risk and value. And so I don't say, know how much things have changed in consulting recently, but isn't it a very hard sell today? Or maybe it's not to get clients to buy into the idea of change being a continuous capability they need to have, for lack of a better word. You know, I think it depends on whether or not their ingoing assumption is it's something to endure or it's something that's going to be liberating and a natural part of what of their evolution. That's a good, okay, that's true. And you think some clients today buying into the fact that this is just the way it has to be? I think those that view it as an aspiration and they're working towards an aspiration accept that it's going to be. Those that view it as a deficit, they have to avoid going out of business. They have to fight off, uh, you know, uh, an attacker or whatever. They're looking for it to end, particularly cost programs. Yes. And do you find there are differences between change programs in the US, Europe, emerging markets, or do you find that it, it doesn't matter that the themes are roughly the same everywhere? That's a mix of both, right? I mean, the, the human condition of accepting change in the workplace is actually pretty consistent. Yes. There's a lot of resistance, I think, we can stop. Well, I mean, the bar, the bar is there, yeah. and the bar is there for the leaders to hit on why anyone should do anything different. And it's yeah. up to the leaders to create those conditions, to influence people. Yeah, so as I was reading your book, one thing that struck me is that a lot of change books you read about, they talk about change 
as if it is a company-wide epic event led by the CEO, which is true. But what you've done is you've, you've brought it down to a series of interactions between individuals. And what you say is that when a company is going through a change, it cannot leave its employees behind. It needs to work with them, talk to them. And that's very unusual because most books teach change as a set of management practices that you need to implement as opposed to a set of discussions you need to have with the employees and try to figure out where they are and how you're going to take them along. We like, we like you know, tools and assets and ways of thinking about things, same as the next person, but yeah. that doesn't get it done. That's just a way to help problem solving. I mean, here's the thing. We've, you know how like people humanize their pets, right? Yes, yes. Okay. We like to humanize organizations. It's as if the organization has corpus. The organization I like does that not. Analogy. I like that analogy a lot. I've never heard that one before. It's a construct. It's a group of people. That, that organization isn't going to change if the people don't change. People are individuals. That's why you have to go to the eye level. So yes, you can write a plan for the whole thing to broadly guide it, setting the aspiration for performance and health. But at the end of the day, if the people don't change how they think and behave, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. Now, that is so obviously intuitively correct. But why do so many executives not see it that way? Is there a reason that they're under pressure? Well, I mean, what, what, what do many people do with things that they find unpleasant or they're, they're afraid of it being unpleasant? They don't do it, basically. They don't do it. Or they just assume that they can shout louder and people are just going to behave. Yes. That's and, you know, I plus, think. let's think about the opening, the opening things that we're suggesting people do. Yeah. Don't start with the deficit. Start with the aspiration. What yeah. would be really exciting on the performance front and how do you want to run the place? Then take an honest, cold, hard look and say, all right, how are we really doing? And then, okay, so what does that require? That requires leaders to have humility and, and say, I know we're not good enough. We got us in this position. And then it requires courage to put down tried and true patterns of behavior, habits, things that make them comfortable, to say, I'm going to have to do something different because that clearly isn't working. So going back to the first time you and your team, I'm sure quite a few people contributed to this thinking, the first time that you started rolling this way of approaching change out of clients, I mean, what is the experience? Was it easy to do? Uh, in the early days, people wanted to treat health as if it was serial. So you did performance first, then you got around to thinking about health. <laughs> yeah. Right, which meant it never happened. Yeah. Or we don't have time for that. We can't staff resources against it. Yeah, 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 but we got to get the cost out. I mean, the biggest thing in the early days was we were so enamored with landing the idea of performance and health, we missed the opportunity to say, you know, the way you work on performance is actually working on health. If you just change the language to say, you know, when you're trying to improve performance, you are running the place. So surely we can change how we run the place while we're changing how we make money. It's when you combine them, your pursuit of a new approach to procurement, your pursuit of a new approach to pricing, implementing a different way of running your equipment, maybe you're bringing lean in. That requires setting direction, making sure individuals know what they're on the hook for, motivating them, tracking how it's going, you know, your operating measures, managing risk. You're doing it anyway. So why not put them together and say the way we pursue performance improvement is how we're gonna run the place and that's how we're gonna change it. We're not gonna treat it like this thing on the side. So the, the big shift is, a company is doing this anyway, they have to do it anyway. So rather than saying it's something we have to do six months from now, let's find a way to combine it because it's 100%. What to do anyway. 100%. And you know what that does? It stops making it an HR issue. Yeah. When you keep it separate, it's over in the culture ghetto. Well, you, you raise an excellent point. Why do people think change is an HR issue in the first place? Well, because it's HR's job to deal with everybody's crap. 
what you're upset about, right? It employs to be more productive, more fulfilled, more innovative, more engaged. Sounds like something that the line management and executive thing. I mean, the single most, remember we talked about my dissertation, right? The yeah. single most important relationship at work is between you and your boss. Exactly. It drives an insane amount of variability in performance. So aren't you the one who's running the place? So you should be the one changing. So, that's, so are there some good examples of companies that have rolled this out well that you're allowed to talk about? Um, well, I can give you examples of it without naming them. That's sure, fine. That's yeah. But look, I mean, I've had a nice run of really interesting organizations, you know, a, a global mining company, global refiner, power, you know, a, a federally owned power uh, utility, uh, you know, really interesting places. The common denominator in all of them was it was high stakes, mm -hmm. you know, either, you know, one of them had declared force majeure yes. on, their, on their commodity product. One of them had a, an environmental disaster, flooded a valley with, uh, you know, stuff coming out of one of their power plants. No bad things, right? Or one of them was actually, frankly, close to going out of business. So in all cases, they were at a pivot point, a point where it, they could no longer ignore it, and they could no longer think that doing what they did yesterday, but just trying harder, was going to get it done. And at that moment, at that moment, they were also able to say, and you know, we, we can't just do it like we've been doing it. We have to do something else. And that something else was both how they prioritize their effort and their capital towards performance, but also how they prioritize their most important capital, human capital, and reallocated the people. This burning platform, for lack of a better word. Well, you know what's interesting? Great point. And I, and I, I, because that has been the mantra for a long time. We're increasingly seeing that even in situations where the place is going out of business, if you get them to fixate on what it would be like when it's great, mm -hmm. it works dramatically better. We learned this from medicine. Like people who've had heart conditions, yes. all you do is say to them, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. They go back to smoking. If you say to them, fixate on what you'd really like to do. I'd like to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'd like to see my son graduate. Dramatically higher uh, stickiness of the behavioral change. So, so there is the energy from, from the deficit know? model to a more aspirational position. 100%. 100%, right? So it, because, and also, you don't stop then. So as long as you're working towards the aspiration, you can keep going. If you're in the deficit model, as soon as the dragon is no longer coming to eat you, you you're like, okay, so this is over now, right? Yeah. And then two years later, you're back doing the same thing. It's also scary to, to have a deficit model, right? Nobody wants to be part of it. It's not fulfilling, it's not uplifting. No. Tell no you I, I think we confuse. They don't do anything, right? I think we confuse love of the hero in an actual crisis, like coming back from a natural disaster or a fire or something like that. We, we like that because it's, it's the stuff that's galvanizing and storytelling. That's not a business model. It's a reaction to a crisis, you know? Well, that's true. That's a very good point. When you let emotion dictate things, right? Yeah, 100%. It is, well, it's, listen, that's why it's psychology. Yes. Okay, so, so clearly there has to be this aspirational, powerful messaging that needs to be, I'm guess, driven by the CEO and his board. Necessary, but not sufficient. You need, you need them to start it, yeah. but increasingly you can see that the cascade doesn't work. And in an, in an environment where the social network is dramatically faster and dramatically more fluid than the formal network, you need to know who the opinion leaders are in the organization and start having them be the conduit. You can't count on the cascade anymore. So give me an example of it. How would that work? Is, is that something that there's a, there's a way that works best or is it just something that depends? Sure not. It's really interesting. You can take one question and randomly send it around to the whole company and say, hey, when something's going on you don't understand, who do you pick up the phone to call and say, hey, what, what do you think is going on here? 
also known as whose opinion do you trust or value? Mm-hmm. Give us up the 10 names. Every time a new name comes in, that person gets the question. If a name comes in and you've already seen it, they get a tick mark. You leave it open for 10 days and voila, you've mapped the water cooler. You know people go to to figure out what's going on. Some people are dramatically more important to the water cooler than others. You need to know who they are because they are most certainly talking about you. It'd probably be better if they were talking about what you wanted them to talk about. So those are the ones you're focusing on, those influences, for lack of a better word. Yes. So yes, the CEO needs a well-constructed message. Yes, increasingly in today's environment, it needs to be multi-stakeholder. Yes, he has to be super consistent, he or she, excuse me, super consistent, and their direct reports, super consistent. Mm-hmm. But it does not penetrate deep into the soul of the organization without the people who actually control the cafeteria, who actually control the water cooler. They're the ones that you need talking about. Yeah, so the CEO needs to craft the message, but the people need to reinforce the message, need to go all the way down the organization. 100%. You know, we talk about five sources of meaning in the book and saying that, hey, don't just give somebody the the, the corporate story. Talk about how it impacts the customers. Talk about how it impacts the employees, their teams, their businesses, the communities you work in. You know, be human about it. Acknowledge that people are going to have different sources of meaning, different motivations. If all you do is give them the stock price or the profit story, you're going to lose 80% of it. Okay. So that's one. So it's getting that message and bringing it down the organization in a human way that's relevant to the person. Right. And plug it, plug it into the broad, plug it into the broad coalition. Okay. So that's one. So is there anything else that's common to these successful change models? Yeah. Early on, early on, the CEO figures out that he actually needs a small army. And so he involves people in the planning. It's not a small group or just one or two with the consultants. Yes. I mean, there is a basic, there is a basic phenomenon here that, you know, if uh, I build a, a Lego model and give it to you, you may look at it and say, oh, that's really nice. But if it drops, it drops. So what with my model? If I give you a, a Lego kit and you build it, you're way more interested in keeping that thing together. Now, I remember in the book, you had an example of Indra Noyi, the head of Pepsi, writing personal notes to the spouses of her executive team because she realized that made people more bonded and oh, yeah. I mean, that, I've never heard of, of a CEO writing messages to the spouses of the executive. I think the good, ones do, the good ones do have personal touches. I mean, you know, there was a while where we were encouraging a CEO that in the course of like their ELT meeting, if something truly exceptional came up, they would FaceTime the employee live from the room. That's impressive. Right. Because, you know, most executives want to be scripted and prepared, but to FaceTime live, that's... That's great, right? It's authentic. That's like raw footage. Is, is so much better than the super polished stuff if you're trying to create intimacy. If exactly. you're trying to people forget that, that, that polished things don't always work because there's no sense of vulnerability. No. You know, when you're a CEO and you're talking, then things are not working very well, but you want to deliver the message. People believe, wow, the guy actually took the time to do this, or the woman took the time to do this. Right? I think there's something here again around the humility point. Yes. Which is being willing to say to people, you know what, I don't actually have all the answers. I know this is what we know. We're aspiring to do that. We're working out right now how we're going to get to it. We're going to keep involving a group of you. But then you also have to say to the employees, now you have a choice. If you only ever want me to bring you all the information, it means you will never be involved. But if you're willing to accept some ambiguity, we can involve you. Because by the time when you start getting involved, we're not going to have all the answers. That's what we need your help for. But I think it also inspires employees when they know that the people they look up to also don't have the answers, right? Well, you'd hope. You'd hope, right? It's true. But I, I remember, I think it was page 132 of your book. I like the way you broke down the components of a great story 
that a CEO or and his team and the people below him need to tell. Because I feel that is part that is almost missing when people start these change programs. They forget that you need to think of how you're going to tell the story. Well, it is a story, right? I mean, you know, we have something called a placemat, which we use for the logic, the structure. And I also saw that that was very clever to just bring it all onto one page because if you can't get it onto one page, you probably don't know what you're doing anyway. Hundred percent. I mean, literally, this was this was I was I was with a, um, a an aluminum uh, company in the Pacific, and uh, you know we had it for the whole company, and then each plant had one. And uh, we were sitting at dinner with a, a guy who I had served as a refinery manager mm-hmm. in the Gulf Coast, and he was hired by this place. And I said, hey. You got you to spend more time with your crew. And by the way, if you can't flip this placemat over and explain what the hell you're doing, uh, it's too complicated. I mean, come on, man. You're like up near Papua New Guinea. You yeah. got people who live in a, in a company town. This is their life. You better make it simple or you're just going to freak them out. So what that was the essence of that. that. That was the logic. And then the story was the humanizing part of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, the page is a very clever page because I think that a lot of times we forget the importance of a story. The other thing I've realized is that you know, there's a game that teenagers play whereby you whisper a word in someone's ear and you keep on whispering it and then... Pass it down the alley. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel that when, you, when you're developing the message as a CEO, you're going to remember there's going to be a lot of room for misinterpretation. You've got to build that in and make sure that it's very clear what you're trying to do. Again, why you don't trust the cascade. You assume they're going to get it wrong. Yeah, exactly. It, and that's why you need the influencers. Yeah, but you know, that's the part that's always missing whereby a lot of executives just assume that the organization is going to get it if they say it enough times. Oh. Yeah, I mean, how arrogant is that? You've been thinking about something for months. You say it one time, and of course, you're so brilliant in your composition that another person who hears it for the, just 30 seconds ago should immediately be jumping up and down and genuflecting and tell you how brilliant you are. Exactly. Come on. It's also, you know, employees are, even if it's not... Even the message is clear. I mean, this example you have in the book about the monkeys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a parable, actually. But yeah, social imprinting is a real thing. This is the first time, I, I think it's, I forget who you quote, but it, was it Ramcharan? Yeah, it's, it's a parable taken from a book that's intended to uh, highlight this idea of social imprinting. I thought it's a great example because it's exactly the way humans behave. If you condition a group of humans to behave in a certain way, they're going to act that way no matter what else you do until you recondition them. That's right. I mean, it's like Pavlovian on the psychosocial level, you know, which is even if you take away the stimulus, they're still going to assume it's there. Exactly, because it's like shock therapy, right? If you keep on shocking someone, oh, yeah. they're going to be afraid, right? And yeah, never that's, right. And, well, it's, that's right. It's corporate flinching. They're going to think, this, they're going to think the punch is coming. Exactly. And this is the, the, the thing is that because of you know all these pressures and shareholder demands and investor demands and so on, a lot of companies forget that if you just invest in making sure the message is heard and message is understood, the, the return is much bigger than ignoring this, right? Because a lot of companies, you know, from what I've seen, change management, as it's generally called, is just a number of promotional emails they send off, a few videos they put together. And then it's a kind of a tick the box model where they say, we sent out five emails about this, we've done change management, right? Yeah, unfortunately. But it, for me, change management is have the employee behaviors changed. And if the answer is no, then you haven't done any change management. Yeah, I mean, look, I would even say it's one step further, which is have the employees changed how they think and behave. Yeah, yeah exactly. Think and behave so that 
they're not just doing something because you told them to do it, but because they understand that a new way, right. a new mindset is required. I mean, the real test is when you stop watching. Yes. To keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, when a company is talk about culture, I always, my personal view is that forget about what they say on their website, just look at the way they pay people. Because if they incentivize people to do things that are different from what they want them to do, then that is going to be the default model. They're going to do what they're incentivized to do. Well, and that's, and that's even if you're even hoping that the incentives are coherent. You yes. know? <laughs> Which it usually is not, right? It's usually not. I mean, the rise of the, rise of the balanced scorecard and you know, many KPIs meant that usually there's a lack of coherence, actually. So you feel that even today, because balanced scorecard is old, right? It's from the what, early 90s, I think. Even yeah. today, the balanced scorecard pushed out everywhere, you, feel, you still feel that, I mean, I've seen it, but are you saying that right now, companies are still getting their incentive structures? In well, the balance, yeah, most, most confused. In, incent, incent, incentives, right? Incentive pay is supposed to be for behavior and performance above and beyond what is expected. Yes. Your salary is for delivering what is expected. You know, this is something I preach so often. You don't get an incentive for what you are expected to do. Exactly right. That's, that's what you're saying. So that's why, you know, when people talk about, oh, they, they, they build in the budget for incentive, well, then just make that their base pay. Stop. I mean, it's like, calling, it's like calling a cost of living increase a merit increase. It's not a merit. It's not based on merit at all. It's based on being alive. Yes, exactly. That is true. That is true. But let us just circle back to health and performance because it is the most important concept. Everything else is built on this, right? You use an analogy that we also use whereby we talk about an athlete who may be performing very well, you know, clocking great speeds, but he's not quietly chugging away cigarettes and drinking couple of bottles of whiskey at night so that it doesn't impact their performance immediately, but down the line, the health is going to deteriorate. Yeah. It impacts the performance. So the analogy you're using is health is a lead indicator for performance, right? Yes. Conveniently, the math backs that up. It's nice. So, so now, brilliant analogy. I think it's probably the best analogy using in these medical terms, but how do you feel organizations are able to, to track their health. I, you know, it's not that hard, actually. Yeah, it really isn't. I mean, that was, you know, when we wrote the Organizational Health Index in 2002, it was to measure just that. It was to measure the... So now, you know, consulting tools have developed so far that it's easy. So give me an example. So if you were going into an organization, what are the top three or four things you would look for to see if they were a healthy organization? Well, I mean, one, I do actually like to look uh, at the results of the survey, okay? So I do run that. But if I'm looking for indicators, mm -hmm. right? Things that like evidence, you know, like you might walk around, go and get a sense of their employer brand, get a sense of their, cu of their customer brand, I'd get a sense of the relationship between their appraisal rating and pay, and I'd get a sense of whether or not, whether or not they, uh, when their leadership team gets together, whether they're spending time talking or they're spending time deciding. But don't you think there's some kind of control you need to run here? Because what I've seen is, especially in tech, for example, right? When a tech company is doing really well, even if it's got corrosive leadership, if people are getting paid well, it's growing a lot, people seem to say things are going well, but when the stock tanks and growth stalls, yeah. the very same company then changes their viewpoint. Isn't there some yeah. control you need I, to I got, Yeah, so th that's, that's what you're highlighting is a reason against the small, the small surveys, you know, like, like the 12 question types, mm -hmm. because uh, a general inflation bias or general depression based on how it's going in general is a problem there. You know, our, ours has just under 100 questions and covers 37 different practices, right? So they, don't, they aren't impacted that way. That's the beauty of the 
street measurement. There are some things that you're just, you know, the question is so narrowly constrained. It is just, do you see this happening or not? Now, there are questions, general questions around quality of decision-making that you could say, yeah, okay, that one, that one, you know, might bleed in a bit. But yeah. we ask specifically questions at the end, like, hey, over the last year, is it the worst, same, or better? And when you answered that, what were you thinking about? So because we both prime the pump for responses by grouping like items together, and we give the person the opportunity to give that sort of overall assessment, you feel pretty good about teasing out uh, the halo that you're describing. In the book, you use the example of Jim Kane When he left Bear Stearns, he saw tears in the eyes of people. I remember reading an article where he actually quoted that, where he actually said that. But then when you interview people who watched him leave, they had a completely different reaction. That's an example of the bias you are talking about. Yeah, yeah. And look, one of the things that's interesting is sometimes the actual score isn't nearly as important as the variability underneath the score and the patterns of the scores. Or you know, the rough direction of where you're going. Well, yeah, we spend time asking, is it working? You know, the nine boxes, the outcomes, which are agreement questions. But two thirds of the survey is the management practices, just behavior. Do you see this behavior or not? That's way more telling. I'll give you an example. It's a human example. So I, I wrestled my whole life. You wrestled? Right, through, and including through, yeah, you know, like collegiate wrestling, right? Okay, okay. Like Olympic wrestling, right? Not professional wrestling. And so I'm a little over six foot two, but in, in my freshman year of college, I would wrestle at 177 pounds. Mm-hmm. Most days I would walk around around 190, 192. So my rule of thumb was if I was 12 pounds away from the weight three days out, I was okay. I could get down and make weight. I was solving for making weight. And I was good enough to be there, not great. Yeah. But if I ever ran against an opponent who was around my ability, but never let his weight get more than three pounds over, he always won because he was in way, way better shape when we actually walked up the mat. That person was solving for the match. I was solving for making the weight. And so I would do these feast and famine things, you know, up and down. And I do think, I do think, you know, this idea that the perception and what matters and what it was, I would go, oh, it was great. I am, I'm not wasting weight. It's, it's going okay. Whereas, the real thing is, no, 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 it's the match. It's what's actually going on, right? That, that's, what, that's what matters. And the people who are able to change their, their mindset about what matters and what's important. It's about changing the objective function. What 100%. Optimizing here. You know, think about all the places who track behavior, they track activity, yeah. not the result. I'll tell you how the system, you go, well, wouldn't it be useful to know both the result and how you got there? Like people who tell you they made their maintenance budget, but don't bother to tell you that they deferred a bunch of maintenance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, an example of this is, is rankings for things, you know, rankings of universities and so on. They track the inputs, but they don't really track the outputs as well. And I, and I see what you're saying. It's about figuring out what it is you want to measure and measuring the right thing. But do you, feel, do you think it's easy to get companies today to do this? I mean, it's been hard forever. When I was there, it was hard. Do you think it's easy to get a company around the table and say, you know what, we need to focus on, I'm going to use this term loosely because that's the, term people understand on all these soft stuff items. Is there today a greater appreciation for the soft stuff items? You know, I think the environment right now where you see the extra emphasis on purpose and broad stakeholder and the emphasis around the, the differences in the generations, millennials and the ones behind them, I think at a minimum, it's more present in the consciousness. Okay, so at least companies or employees are amenable to yes. importance. Yes, I, I do think there's more of a set of an awareness. Now, whether or not they accept how much work it takes. So like, you know, going to the gym once doesn't make you Hercules. Yes. You know? I do think there's a little bit of a laziness sometimes. And why can't, just, why can't this just be done, you know, sometimes, right? Because it's a little uncomfortable. You're forced to actually talk with people about things that might feel a little difficult, like yes. power and control and influence. 
but but if you you know i mean the data is the data if you're willing to take it on and willing to stick with it and really work it uh it's going to work but it is hard work right that's there's no shortcut yeah and it's really difficult to change the culture of a company i mean it's one of the most difficult things you could ever do right absolutely and look, I mean, plus you always want, you, people want the shortcut, right? They'll say, oh, we can only focus on one or two things. And yeah. it's just, okay, something as complicated as tens of thousands of employees working around the world who would otherwise be doing what they want to do. Do you really think one or two things is going to change the place? Yeah. Like it makes belief. Well, you, the, in the book, you use a good example of, I think it was East Timor, whereby one of your colleagues, I think, was um, driving through East Timor and they saw a lot of rusted earth moving equipment that was donated by, I think it was the Chinese government. But even though the right tools had arrived, the country didn't have the, the capability to actually do something with that. You have to be able to use it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So now what I've seen in consulting is there's a lot of obsession with getting tools because you can measure, you know, you can say that, well, today we taught our employees five tools. But there's less emphasis on whether the tools are being used and being used correctly. Well, and used correctly, right? You know, I mean, I, 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 was, uh, I was at a chemical plant where uh, one of the plants, the, the outside operator, the person who walks around checks gauges, has to wear a hood. And, you know, because they need to be able to have clean air to breathe. Yes. And their, their rounds were moved on to a handheld device. Yeah. So that all the data was available to the engineers back in the headquarters. All seeming to make perfect sense. So when we were looking at it, we noticed, we noticed that all the submission of the data was coming in at exactly the same time, which meant that the operators are filling it in, in the shed, not out at the face where they were taking the readings. Because, you know, you'd walk from thing to thing, there'd be, there'd be a gap, right? So we said, hey, guys, what's going on here? We just spent like 40 million on this uh, system. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me show you about that. So here's the handheld, hold it. Now go ahead, now put the hood on. Someone in procurement, bought polarized lenses for the hood. And they didn't bother to talk to the people who actually did the work, let them try it out. So they hit their KPI of getting a price reduction and they bore, it bore no resemblance to whether or not the outside operators could actually use it. So they were checking their KPI, not the overall goal, right? If you allow people to do it, they're gonna solve for themselves. Exactly. That's why you have to have an aspiration that has meaning to enough people that they were suborn their own needs in pursuit of something bigger. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to this earlier point we we're discussing. They are probably being remunerated based on whether or not they have hit their KPI only. Well, even if it's not remuneration, sometimes it's just ease and identity. Yeah. I want to do it my way. Right. You know, a lot of times people do things not because of maliciousness, but because it's just easy for them to do it, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And we always assume that, oh, this employee has done this, it's something evil, but people are busy, they're tired. You just want to get home at five o'clock and live a normal life. Right? Absolutely right. You know, we spend time there in chapter two, you know, on assessing. We say, look, why would an otherwise well-intended person not be doing what seems obvious? And yes. Because it's not obvious to them, right? Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's just in their mind, it's like, I have a good reason. I'm not allowed. I can't or I won't. If it's I'm not allowed, they believe it's not their job. Or they believe that they're about to violate a social norm. It's like, that's not how we do it around here, which feels too risky. You know, if they're saying they can't, and they're saying, hey, I don't have the time or I don't have the resources. What they're really telling you is your list is not the same as my list. And unless I'm forced to, I'm going to keep working my list. Thanks. Yeah, and I remember, you know, back when I was, you know, doing all these things, I remember speaking to these employees in a state-owned bank. 
And the, the bank had brought in their sixth CEO in something like five years, and he had launched another change program. And I remember asking these employees, you know, why, why are they not excited about this? Right? And then they said, well, it's the sixth program in the last five years, right? We don't know what will happen. It's hard to get motivated about something that changes every few months. And this is one of the things you, that I think, I'm going to say consultants, but also executives tend to forget is that employees have been there a long time. They don't know whether this is anything new. Absolutely right. It's it may so be hard. new to you. It's not new to them. Exactly. So, so you come in there as an executive, you probably have a great career. Even if you completely bundle it up, someone's going to hire you and give you a golden parachute or whatever it is. But as the, as Joe Smith, who's got three kids and is saving for their education, I mean, he's just got to survive the day versus trying to throw his hat into something that may never be able to work. And I think that's always a difficult disconnect. How do you motivate people who have been through this so many times? Well, you could start by acknowledging that stuff didn't work in the past. I mean, we're back to the humility thing again. Don't yeah. act like people don't have memories, you know? Yeah. The institutional memory of Acknowledge what didn't work. If you want people to believe that this has a chance, at least start with acknowledging what didn't work before and how this is different. Yes. I like that. I mean, do it without throwing everyone under the bus, of course. But it's okay to say, hey, we gave it a go. We thought it was going to work. It didn't, but we've learned from it. So what we're going to do different. Yeah, it's also about listening to employees about what they think needs to be done differently. 100%. Right? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly right. I mean, it is it, the whole idea of listening. It's a really interesting thing, right? If you're just waiting your turn to speak, you're going in with an assumption that you have something to tell as opposed to something to ask and learn. Yes. You know, the interesting thing, you talk about listening, but... I've only done one implementation engagement in my entire life. And the thing that struck me about implementation is that you've got to talk to people at least seven times to get them to change their behavior. So it's not an engagement where you go in there, you do the analysis, you present to the executive team, and then you're done. In implementation, you've got to sit there, you've got to keep your door open, talk to person A the first time, follow up with them, delivering the same message in a different way a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, and only then do they trust you and start changing. Well, that's even just to try it, right? I mean, even I think- just to try, It's right. They may not even then- That's right. That way, right. We delude ourselves a little bit. You know, there was um, some academics named Meyer and Allen yeah. who uh, in the 90s were writing on commitment and said, hey, not all commitment is created equal. You know, we're often, you know, we want people to think this is the next best thing since sliced bread. For some people, it's just continuance commitment. They're doing it because they need the job. Oh, and others, most others most do it just because all their peers are doing it, right? It's like a normative thing. Very, very few out of the gate are like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I do it even nobody was watching. Yeah. We, we act like people should be there to start. You're just trying to get adoption. Just try it. And with the belief that if it works and they get reinforcement and recognition and you're making it easy to do it, then they'll start grooving into it. But we have a completely delusional sense of what people are going to adopt and how quickly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how tiring it was to talk to so many people. It's, it's really tiring to, to just talk and try to convince someone. And that's when you're doing it one-on-one, -on -one, right? I mean, imagine an executive who is relying on his team to implement things, but he doesn't have the ability to talk to everyone one-on-one. -on -one. It's, it's incredibly difficult. You have to be creative. And you've got to understand it's going to take a long time just to get you know, Who does talk to everybody? The people who control the water cooler talk to everybody. Yeah, but even for them, it's, it's hard. Of course it is. You need to give them tools. It's just, it's the reinforcement, right? I mean, why, why when you see a product online, you may not even give it a second glance, but when you see that it says that five people that you know who are your Facebook friends have reviewed it, you're like six times more likely to buy it. 
you have the power of a referral from someone you trust. Exactly right. Exactly I mean, right. Basically, what you're saying, right? you, have, you basically want management's idea to be referred by an influencer, what you call the water cooler. 100%. Reinforced and suggested. Now, that makes sense to anyone. But if you read a lot of management literature, there's a lot of emphasis about change being driven top down versus this concept of cultivating yes. these influences. Well, the people who are buying a lot of those books are, in fact, in the senior roles. And so yeah. there's a there's a bias to, to talk about the primacy of those roles. I mean, like I, I said, they're, 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 they're necessary. They're not sufficient. That's a very, very good point you bring up because one of the things I noticed about the book, which I really liked, is that it's written in a very practical way by you, whereby you talk about just about every article you read, Harvard Business Review and so on, it's written for the most senior executive about how he develops a plan. But your book straddles that plan into how do you actually get this to be rolled out, right? Well, that was the intent, right? I mean, intent was to be actually a pretty accessible guide to successfully changing how you run the place. Yeah, because, you know, I can imagine a senior manager or even a middle manager reading your book and saying, you know, I can actually do some of these things because they're not too theoretical. There's actual steps here. I made some notes here, you know, page 132, for example, there's a great way of how you break down the story. Page 128, how you, you know, lock in influences and so on. Yep. And I think it achieves that. So, so let's just circle back here, right? So you in Philadelphia, you've, you're obviously no longer, are you still running the office or are you now fully involved in building the organization? Oh, yeah. No, no, I, was, I was just one of the people who opened it. I wasn't, wasn't running it. And I've always played more in the organization practice, you know, leading that. Okay. And so what's the next steps in this thinking and the organizational practice? Where are you going with this now? I mean, obviously, there's much more to be done. Just, yeah. What do you see as the next frontier? I think, you know, I think, there's something really interesting coming out, what we're calling mass personalization of change. So how we can create a personalized and customized and configured experience of change for every individual. That sounds difficult. How would you do that? Well, you know, we've been talking about performance and health, right? Yeah. So if you were to draw a two by two grid and across the top, it said P and H. And on the left, you put an O and an I for organization and individual. Mm -hmm. The upper left is where most people spend their time. How are we going to make money? The upper right, health and organization. How are we going to run the place? It's we, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's for the monolith, it's overall, right? Treating the average as representative of everyone. But how do you bring that to life? Well, that how we're going to make money disaggregates in the roles and people occupy those roles. So what if we just made sure that every person knew what their jobs to be done were? What were the critical five or six things that they needed to do to really nail the value? What if they were really clear on their spot in that placemat that we talked about? Like they had a personalized placemat. Mm -hmm. Now you'd know that all of their activity was focused on what mattered. And over on the lower right, how do I have to think and behave to bring this to life? That whole thing that you're saying about how you're going to run a place different, it always requires people thinking and behaving differently. So can we get super specific? So we built an app to help bring this to life for every employee. And then we asked them, hey, this thing that you're being asked to do seems pretty straightforward. Why aren't you doing it? And we get a handle on not allowed, can't, or won't, you know, the blocking mindset. So, so then we can match the behavior we want them to do with the blocking mindset they have and actually give them a really good nudge. But not a nag, not a reminder email, a nudge. Using the app, doesn't it? I mean, it assumes they're using the app. That means you need like... Oh, you can track, you know what's great about, you know what's great about apps? You know when it's on, you know when it's running, you know when they've opened it. And then we can measure all the people around you telling us whether or not you're changing your behavior. It is remarkable. Across an organization of, let's say, 60,000 people, I mean, 
it's going to be hard to get, I mean, is it, I'm guessing it's going to be hard to get high adoption rates for the app. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, most people read emails on their phone now, mm. you know, I mean, it could be, you know, when there's structural things like shift work, people who don't have company phones, things like that, that can be a little harder, you know? But the goal is not to get everyone to use it, but enough people. I, I would love out of the gate to start with everyone who's in a critical role, yeah. everyone who's involved in a transformation and all the influencers. I would just start with them and then work yeah, my way that around. That makes sense to me because then that's easier to manage. And if, there's a, if you need to make contact with someone, you can do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, we just added a couple of weeks ago a, uh, a social wall. So, so someone said, hey, I'm working on bottom-up innovation. I'm having a hard time. Who's tried anything? People can throw it up and say they did or not, and people can like it and you know, kind of recommend it and broadcast it. And it's interesting how recognition from your peers is unbelievably reinforcing. I mean, we can see that when somebody gets recognized by one of their peers, their likelihood of a jump in behavior the next week goes through the roof. So now all this app work and so on, that's currently being done within the firm? Yeah. So this is the merging of all the digital analytics work and so on being brought to bear on organizational design and organization. That's right. Design work, digital work, capability building, and then the or, you know, org psychology. So that's, you know, it makes sense. You know, you bring the best of the firm from different places together to solve. That's the, that's the intent anyway. Yeah. Well, it seems to be working in, in this particular example. It seems to be working. It makes sense as well because a lot of times... When you see firms talk about building apps, it's as if the app is the goal, but here the app is subordinate. It's there to help you collect the data and engage with people. It's merely a conduit. Merely a conduit. That's all. Yeah. But it makes sense, right? Because then you can push notifications to people. I mean, if you've got the right... Okay, so this is, this is really interesting. One of the features is the person gets to set when they receive their push. Sunday night, Monday morning, Tuesday at lunch. I mean, the, the analogy I use because I, I just turned 50, right? So I'm old enough to remember these things. When Netscape had um, Communicator and Navigator, they were the dominant browsers before Explorer you know, took over. One of the things that was always cool was when the next version came out, you downloaded it, you'd sit there for a half hour and configure it. Where do you, which pane is gonna be your email? Which pane is gonna be your calendar? Where's your ICQ feed gonna come in? The minute you configure something to your liking, you are a multiple time more likely to keep using it. Mm, that makes that's sense. Why we make it that's why we make this thing configurable. So now you're collecting all this data, which means that so you're collecting all this data, and you obviously bring this all into McKinsey, which gives you more granular ways to cut and see what people are doing. So yes. it's almost like a circle, a reinforcing circle. Yeah, well, that's the hope. Well, it's a good start, right? I mean, the OHI has over six million people have taken it and closing in on 3,000 companies. That's a nice base of feeling comfortable that when we assert something about how, how you run the place impacts performance, we know that. We're not, we're not, it's not a belief, it's not an assertion, it's not marketing, we know it. Yes. What we're hoping to do now on the individual level is at a similar level of understanding and depth around how different approaches to nudging impact people based on their own personality. And, and I love the way you use the word nudging because that's exactly what it is. You're trying to nudge people to modify their behavior. That's right. It's not a nag. It's not a reminder email. It's yeah, nag. it's, um, I forget what economists call it, but you've got to find a way to get people to change their behavior without making it, oh, you know, obvious you're trying to get them to change their behavior because then they, they throw up barriers. Well, they might actually react really badly to it, right? I mean, you know, people who are normative and have a high sense of social responsibility, the last thing they want to see is a league table. Yes. That's going to turn absolutely. them off. It's competitive. But if you say to them, hey, you know, seven, seven of your colleagues have already done this. 
are, you know, are you going to be able to finish it up? They will immediately be mortified that they're letting their colleagues down. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's almost a gamification kind of model. It's just matching. It's matching your interaction with the person to who that person actually is and not assuming the average works for everyone because it doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like the way banks used to do microfinance. If you lend money to six friends and one of the friends knows that the other five is paying on time, they want to also pay on time, right? Yeah, they don't want to be the only one. They don't want to be the odd one out. It, it's, it's not shaming them, but it's making them aware of where they are. Well, it's pride. I mean, you are, you are directly going after pride there. Yes, but you're not doing it in an abrasive no, 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 no. You're tapping into the person's motivation. Exactly. You're figuring out what do they want to be known for. And nobody wants to be the one who's not doing well. And you may, right. You're showing them where they actually lie on things, but you're doing it in a good way. You know, you know, our discussion, we've never spoken once about organizational structures, which I think is good because whenever people talk about org design, they always go to organizational structures, organograms, and so on, which is really out. I mean, it's important. You need those things, but it's not what drives a healthy organization. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, look, I think it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting tactic to group together activities and try to get one, you know, an economy of skill, skill, or scope. Yeah, to me, an organogram is more like a financial statement. It's a snapshot in time, but it doesn't tell you how to pull your resources and allocate capital and so on. No, no, right. I mean, you really do need to understand how you're gonna make money before you allocate the two kinds of capital, financial and human. And as an, an interesting aside, I know, we're, I know we're coming close to time here, but, but as an interesting aside, all of our governance systems are set up to monitor the capital that we're long on, and, which is money. The capital that we're short on, people, we ignore, and you can barely get people to pay attention to it. That makes no sense. Yes. In terms of time, I do have additional time, and I'll touch on a few more points. How are you doing for time? Uh, I have, hold on, let me see here, I just have to call it. I want to make sure I understand what, what our topic was. Uh, when do we go to? Are we going to uh, the half past? Yeah. How does that sound? Yeah. I, I, if we can go a little shorter, fine. But yeah, that, that's fine. I, I, have to chase I have a few it. more points that were quite interesting and you know, make sure that the audience is aware of them. Okay, so good. We're talking about organizational structures. You know, it's a snapshot. It doesn't talk about allocation of capital. You talked about the, you know, one of the most important assets we have, which is I wouldn't like using the word human capital, it's too overused, but let's say people, right? It's about motivating them and so on. Do you then see, you know, in the way you've written about organizational thinking, it's, it's very much tied into the original work you did for your PhD and your first work, which is about motivating people and getting the most out of them. I mean, that's the way I've seen you interpret organizational thinking. Well, I mean, at its core, you are trying to get people who otherwise would do what they want to do, what you want them to do in the way you want them to do it, when you want them to do it. I mean, if that's not calling for motivation, I don't know what is. I mean, you, what, you're doing, going, what you're doing is you're going back to why an organizational team was put together in the companies to get the most out of employees, right? The job was not to put together organograms and then- That's right. The belief set is these people working together in concert to a common end will accomplish something. Hmm. That's the intent. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's the right way to do it. So the other area that I like is the book talked a little bit about how this kind of thinking can be used to motivate countries. And the reason I want to touch on that is we have a lot of listeners in emerging markets who sit on boards of state-owned companies and so on. Is there any particular insights you've seen around how this applies to state-owned companies? Or sure. Yeah, you know, I've served them. I've served them and used this there. Good. 
I mean, look, I think, you know, let's say you may be constrained by the extent to which you can differentiate through incentives, or you may be constrained in terms of formal consequence management. But you know what's still there? Influence, power, recognition, working on work that matters, working with people you like, right? You know, all that, all that kind of stuff is still there. People, when they get up in the morning, regardless of whether they're going to a government entity, a state-owned enterprise, a private or a public enterprise, no one gets up in the morning and says, well, I'm gonna be really horrible today. It's not how it works. We spend too much time at work. No one wants hassle. So the game you're playing is, how can you get people lined up on doing what you'd like them to do and get to at least some kind of a common agreement about how much effort it takes, you know, and what, what standard, right? But that's, but that's the essence of it, right? That's why you're trying to create an environment. That's the whole point of the influence model. Help you people understand why you're asking that. company, forget whether it's a private company. It's still a business and there are certain fundamental things all businesses require. You're trying to have an impact. You have a budget. You have a bunch of people allocated against it. You have financial capital against it. It's the same idea. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you've got a boss who just happens to be. It just changes how you keep score. That's all. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the way to motivate humans is going to differ by culture and region. But the principle that you have to motivate your employees is still the underlying principle. 100%. 100%. And those tools and principles are broadly the same, right? You've got to identify with people, know what they need, know what they want, and find a way to give that to them in a way that's beneficial to the company. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, the beauty of this is it holds true everywhere. Mm-hmm. Say where you're going to go and make sure it's really attractive. Take a really honest look about where you are. Which is basically yeah. the basic of capitalism, right? It's- right. Figure out what skill, what skill you need to close that gap and figure out how people have to think differently to help close that gap. Structure a set of activities to make sure you make the environment really conducive to them changing. Pay attention once you hit go whether or not the darn thing is working so that you can course correct along the way. And then while you're doing it, as soon as you find something that works, change the formal system. Don't make this the event, make it how you run the place. Repeat. I think that's a good summary. Bill, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed speaking to you. I enjoyed the book as well. And, well, uh, thank you. I really had a good time. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we did this. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.